like for a brand when they do their like their Zoom video for the brand and they have all their shit in the background. It looks like they uh, they put it there very much by design, right? Like uh, you need to think that I'm an educated reader of things. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so it's all about the image we project. Yours is that you have a some wallpaper up. I see. Um, yes, some some old wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's to say that my personality is a blank slate. You can project anything onto me. Um, a reflection of whiteness inside <laughs> I, I saw that you had all your movie posters up which i am very jealous of those look amazing they, i have some like there's uh yeah some in there too here yeah my my touch of evil one damn back that's here. cool yeah uh but yeah i got the the nashville one up in the living room instead i, I spent a lot of time deliberating which ones looked good together yeah i mean it's <laughs> an art right what do you think the is. art is of a uh, poster design like you need certain things to go together right yeah, definitely a kind of flow in the arrangement of things, the style, like, you know, how, how the poster is designed, if it's like, you know, hand drawn, or if it's like a kind of more, you know, uh, watercolor style or photographic, uh, you definitely got to think about color schemes. I think that was kind of the, the biggest thing I looked at with the ones there. Like you saw, I had the lighter color ones all behind the TV, and then the darker palettes like Nashville and out of the past, I put them together. Because it aesthetically just made sense. You really have to plan these things out. You can't just slap <laughs> posters up on the wall like a maniac. Absolutely. Um, I like that Chinatown's behind the TV. I think it's a good poster just for that like prime spot too. It, it yeah, shows it's, off, I think. The Chinatown one, we, we and that's the other thing that kind of throws our wrench into things, is that it's a different sized poster than everything. And it's in a different oh, frame okay. than everything else. <laughs> so it it requires like prominence in the center so that way you keep a proper balance so like there there was really no other place to put it that one is great by the way are we recording this i have no idea yeah, we are okay thank god. In the show. thank god uh. thank god i was so mad because i was like oh this is a great conversation so that, that chinatown poster comes from a, a garage sale that i bought at uh there's a person who who lived nearby where we used to live back up at uh whidbey island uh, he used to run a rental store up in Coopville there, like a kind of small town blockbustery thing, whatever. But he was moving on to New Passions. And so he was oh, cool. selling his entire DVD collection. And so we went up there and we went ham with things. It was like one of the last <laughs> days he was hosting this. And uh, I, you know, I just asked that because I saw in his place, he had the Chinatown poster hanging up. I'm like, you, do you want to sell that too? Because like, I understood that, you know, like he, he expressed that it was because it was for like, he was trying to fund a new thing in life. Yeah. So it was like, let, let me help you with that. And he's like, sure. How much you got, you know, how much you want to pay for it. And I checked my wallet and I only had $13. Oh no. <laughs> Did he, he accept it? Yeah. He sold oh, it to wow. me in the frame as well. It's, it's oh, like Jesus. mounted in the frame. And now that I've been collecting posters for longer, I I've realized how much the value that, is yeah probably was actually <laughs> worth and i've felt like shit ever since i did go back like a couple days later and i bought uh like some small shelves from him well, that he was go. also getting rid of like because i felt like i needed to pay more because he was so generous with that poster well you supported so his nice. enterprise to a new hobby anyway i mean he was shedding a hobby so i understand I did, yeah. offloading like like i sold all my video games for much less than they're worth because i just didn't care anymore i was like i'll get a couple thousand off all these and uh, call it a day yeah um, there's a you all you also have like the cool cases like there's snap cases right so do you yeah. put the you put the posters in yourself or do you did you have someone do it yeah I, I put them in myself because it's it's really just like a very easy thing and uh 
th that means that they're not necessarily like the most prestigious frames, but uh, it makes it easier for swapping mm. posters out consistently. Which yeah, you know, because sense. I'm because I'm growing my collection, it's nice. So they they kind of undo from the front the frames themselves. They're on hinges like on each side, so you just open the sides up, and then there's a nice plastic sheet with an anti-glare on it uh, that you can take out. You know, that, that you use to hold the posters in place. So they're not just being held on by these strips and potentially getting ripped. Uh, and especially now, since I'm moving to like, I'm, I'm trying to purchase original one, like one sheet prints yes. of a lot of things. Uh, there's a couple of just like reprints I have because for some older films, especially from like the forties, it's like, you're in like the hundreds of dollars <laughs> for posters, which is still original prints. Very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at them, like, pieces of art that you hang up which they are then it you know it's a worthy investment you know but uh it's still you got to have the the capital to purchase them and you know well, there seems like there's three markets there that there's originals vintage and then replication so like there's three different ways you could really collect but original just seems so appealing yeah especially if you if it just makes it feel a little more authentic you have some more a little more character like uh Let's see. Uh, the Nashville one I just bought was an original. And oh wow, it's so beautiful! I love that yeah, Nashville one. It's great. Uh, sometimes a lot of the originals, uh, and and they come in like a variety of ways. Uh, since these ones are more paper uh, prints, I think in a lot of older ones, um, they're they're typically folded when you mm -hmm. get them, and so you can see the lines on them. But does that matter to you? A, a little. A little, but also it, it gives it some character, so I don't yeah, mind that much. It looks like uh, it's used in from an original theater, right? Like, yeah. Like, it, it looks like it's been through um, a showing as, or two. As long so. as it's taken care of well, and there's not, mm -hmm. like, lots of tears and things, or, or prominent tears, I should say, because there is, like, a tear at the bottom of the Nashville poster, but mm -hmm. you can't really see it, uh, then it's all good. Uh, but then there are also folded posters, like, uh, I, I bought an original Poltergeist poster that I'm going to hang up during Halloween, uh, and that one's very nice. It's entirely pristine and folded, and, or, or <laughs> not, not not folded. I meant rolled. I said folded again, didn't I? Damn it! <laughs> movie movie posters are interesting as antiquated items because you don't run into them in your daily life. You see them like on display at the movie theater or in a collector's house, but you don't. You rarely see them in store as like something purchasable in a collectible way, right? Like a, um, I know at Mount Vernon, uh, a little bit past Everett here, they they sell mm -hmm. a. They sell their posters after a run, so you could always go to your theater. I know they sell them for five bucks there after a run, but usually they'll give them to you. So. We have, yeah, if you, uh, depending on the place, especially right. smaller theaters. One of the first posters we acquired was this beautiful, uh, uh, like hand drawn looking style one for uh, The Shape of Water when it came out. And that one's sitting in the closet right now, just because uh, we don't we don't have space. Like you, you saw from my pictures of the living room yeah. that you know we've we've covered that pretty well. So unless we want literally the entire house to be covered in movie posters, which I'm not you know writing off as an option yet, it's a possibility. <laughs> uh, then you know we need to consider again the the swapping around of posters more, which again is why those snap cases are are so uh, utilitarian. And you can see that I'm running out of movie space, really. Like, my Criterion shelf is, you know, I have, like, eight more titles. I might have to get, like, an actual DVD shelf at some point. Um, because these, like, Ikea shelves, they don't give you enough shelves to keep building these small cases. You just have a lot of large spaces. So. That's another thing we're looking at because we have to get, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get the movie arrangements a little bit better. And it's not that I'm running out of space but the wall space is a little different here and so yeah. i need to switch one of my shelves to just like a really tall skinny one 
that can kind of fit on the wall with my other gigantic movie shelves uh which you know from being over my house they're they're titanic they're big big mega shelves that hold you know hundreds of movies <laughs> yeah like this i only have two rows devoted to movies i keep it really clean i guess but um i i only really want to show criterions i guess uh so, no big deal again there yeah. it's it's kind of like the same thing especially like part of the reason criterion is such a, a fervent fan base is because you know there's a kind of prestige around the releases themselves the, the actual packaging and the commissioned right. artwork and such like, and they make sense on this shelf next to literature i i mean like their design looks elaborate enough it's not like silly hollywood fied movie cases it they're not like steel books or some shit like they look good <laughs> next to books right like mm-hmm. um they just fit onto a bookshelf so i i keep it that way um should we uh should we get this uh show on the road i i we could do a whole podcast about movie collecting and definitely later. i mean i i would gladly do that because i'm doing a lot of it <laughs> <laughs> but sure let's uh recording you said go this time yeah that was very confusing what, what are you pavlos i felt very dramatic while i was counting down to like i was a nasa controlman so i, tr- I really spaced out my numbers more than it was, usual. It was longer than you need to. Really, we only need like like three seconds if everyone's paying attention here. I count down for you. Three, Five, two, one, go. Four. <laughs> three. <laughs> um, you, got, you got to pad that runtime somehow. We got to make it to an hour. Well, from DVD collecting to watching movies, which we, we do less than we collect, I believe. Um, At least count- in my case, for sure. <laughs> From movie collecting to movie watching, um, we're back with the Twin Geek Cast. I'm Calvin Kemp here with David Punch. How are you, David? I'm good. Uh, here, you're your expert on all things French New Wave, as always. Uh, French New Wave and also the Alternative Right. Um, we are an Alternative <laughs> Right podcast. Um, a friend continues to remind me that we're alt-right, but I just want to remind the listener we are an alternative to the right wing. Um, not left, not right, but alternative. We're very left, aren't we? Uh, I I should say so. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> I'm afraid that I'm asking. I don't know what this is coming look, over me. I've put I've put the Hitler documentaries <laughs> behind me. I moved on last week to talk about the the Allies during World War II. I'm on the good guys side now. Everything is as it should be. I've brought We're a very progressive. Back to the force. <laughs> We're very progressive in that we go from Nazis to uh, fighting against Nazis. Exactly. Uh, this week. Um, I've watched Q into the storm, really broadening our, oh. our scope of coverage. All right, here we go again. <laughs> now we're back to being an actual outright podcast. <laughs> by, by actual, you mean alternative to the right, please. Yes, uh, yes. Alternative to the right, of course, as always. <laughs> um, so I've never, I've avoided my whole life websites like 4chan, 8chan, because I really feel like there's a trust. There's like a, a signal of trust in a social network, like, I get on a social network because I'm connected to a network of friends that I trust interacting with. Uh, something about having that anonymity, although it takes me back to like the AOL days, uh, that's something I wanted to shed about the internet. I mean, that's something I wanted to move forward from and, and find like distinct communities. Uh, I thought the internet got a lot better like around the 2000s once we like formed communities. So I always avoided the site and I've only found out about it because of Q into the storm, which I thought was going to be a Q documentary, but is more formidably an 8chan documentary. And you realize those two things are the same thing. Q, who became a big 
message leader on the alt right and in like those those not the alternative to the right though no we don't we don't support (laughs) there's no cue about that (laughs) um and he he always posts like the vague messages about like the storm coming and alice in wonderland going down the rabbit hole as as you said when i i brought up we were doing this we're going down the rabbit hole and i said yeah that's that's a cue motto we we really are in on this stuff um also like a matrix thing isn't it and they're, and yeah. they're also kind of like talking about taking the red pill they've kind of co-opted that as well <laughs> the the intro is pretty brilliant it has like a, a cg rabbit taking a red pill and then shooting lasers onto the capital uh, it's pretty <laughs> funny looking while um go ask alice plays behind it a uh, pretty funny intro it sounds um, pretty great can i sign up for this q thing <laughs> i i think you can at uh eight What's it? Eight con, I think it's called. Eight eight chan, eight con. <laughs> eventually, uh, I learned everything I know about it from this documentary, which really surprised me. I thought at first it was giving me way too much about eight chan until I realized those guys are probably Q. Um, uh, it builds a really strong case in so much as they admit that they're Q without really saying it, uh, which is peculiar. Uh, at one point, when the the facade starts to break, break as soon as they're like a the guy puts down his camera and he's like, yeah, it's been Steve Bannon all along. He's been Q. And he kind of investigates that. And it doesn't match up with anything Bannon does. Yeah, um, I, I was going to say, I don't, I don't really buy Steve yeah. Bannon as competent enough to orchestrate anything. Yeah, not consistently and not without taking credit with it. I think Steve Bannon's thing is wanting a massive credit in like the Breitbart circles. And uh, so, yeah, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, the most plausible theory is generally kind of been that Q is like a variety of people. It's like yeah, a that label that's true. passed down uh, and to kind of just feeding this, this uh, you know, mass of, um, you know, hysteria and conspiracy theories and such uh, and to continue to rile up and, and grift essentially uh, an entire sect of the population. It was definitely someone else at some point. And then between 4chan and 8chan, it switched over, it switched websites uh, then something happened with like the trip code for uh, virtual identities on there. So whoever was Q lost access. And at that point, it seems like maybe 8chan took it over. Like when they had to move their site to 8con as well, um, nobody could post on there. But somehow Q was able to, which kind of tells you it has to be an administrator on the system. Um, so it seems to be both Ron and Jim. Um, Ron, a young tech guy who says he just translates Chinese for money, but uh, nobody knows the name he does that under, so unresearchable. Uh, everything they don't do is very anonymous and strange. Um, they begin the documentary saying they don't even know about Q, like they don't even go on their own boards, and they keep breaking and contradicting themselves in interesting ways. Uh, very good documentary in that uh, I don't think Ron's ever really been shot for any documentary or video purposes before like uh, other than like interviews around the election last time i don't think he really uh, made a big break um that's that's when uh he posted about the dominion vote voting machines everyone picked up on his account and he became like one of the most powerful uh retweeted accounts for a few weeks so, um he had a big break there but uh other than that it, it does seem like a good documentary for someone like me who knew nothing of q so it's good that it informed you uh although i think it uh, did leave out at least one crucial piece of uh information what's that I've, i have something to tell you Kevin. i'm q actually uh oh, shit. i've been 
I've been running this for, for for quite some time behind the scenes. Uh, it's really easy actually to send out kind of secret bullshit shit messages and <laughs> keep riling up like the the right about shit like you know uh, cabals of pedophiles in the government and Donald Trump becoming president still or acting as a, a shadow president and stuff and just making up all kinds of crap. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. I, I get a lot of uh, kicks out of it in my hobby, but. Uh, it, it has gotten stale recently as things have kind of calmed down and a lot of people have realized it's, you know, just a giant, you know, joke and, and just really used to cause harm and stuff for a lot of, you know, people and to incite uh, insurrection within the people. So this is my official statement of uh, stepping down and I'm officially completely now moving on from, uh, you know, fascist ideologies and I'm ready to actually embrace our messages of being alternative to the right here on this podcast going forward. Well, uh, thank you very much for that very, very, very brave admittance that you're Q. Uh, I'm a little bit taken aback because that that seems to take a lot of time and energy. And that's that that would be why uh, you know my my quality of uh, you know on the podcast here has been so low lately. I'm just half the time typing away at shit and, and not really paying attention to anything you have to say. That makes sense. Um, but I'm here now. I'm ready to be more engaged. Uh, I think our website is, is far more important than the manipulation <laughs> of mass Americans across the country. That's the thing. I don't understand what's in it for any of them. I mean, the, it's obviously just to have power because HN doesn't make money. So, Well, for a lot of the, yeah, for, for people it is that, but also a sense of community, at least on the, the receiving yeah. end of people, from what I see is my vantage point as Q. Um that and that's something that that 4chan brings together because despite the anonymity um and in places like 8chan as well obviously where they moved uh you know they all are able to rally around and find solace in this communication with one another and that's kind of the dangerous thing that allows these uh ideologies to fester because they all you know take take solace together in their shared misery or disappointment or frustrations and they just keep doubling down on that and and building up the the hate and the the anger and the you know the lashing out well um there was actually a notable new release outside that uh shiva baby which i just got to last night i had to push a few things around on the on the show order here uh, just because it left a mark on me um because it's a whole anxiety trip of a movie you know how every trailer's become like hereditary strings like just discord and uh violin sounds and um Every horror movie sounds kind of the same way. It's like that, but not presented as horror. It's like a social horror of uh, claustrophobia. Whereas um, Rachel Sonat, a really startling new actress. So uh, it's exciting seeing her perform so well. And all the energy, the prickly energy of the film just around her. Complete mental breakdown in a social setting. Um, it, it really does feel like a panic attack. And I feel like the movie's probably over-directing our emotions with like those violin sounds. And I kind of wish it let her really great acting in this breathe. Um, it is such a, like a standout performance. I wish that I remembered it because of her performance and not because it made me uncomfortable because of music or something. Um, uh, she is really good. She goes into the Shiva, uh, like a Jewish celebration of death and, um, her parents, everyone's there, but more people are there than she bargained for. Like a, an ex, um, another woman that she's dated. She doesn't want to let on with the, all of her, um, 
all of our people in our group. I'm not, I'm not Jewish, of course, so I'll use all the wrong words. I'd rather not use them. So um, there's also her uh, sugar daddy who's there. Uh, and she's just been sleeping with him on the side. His wife is also there. Uh, so there's a lot of conflict just inherent in all this. And um, she has differing life stories that she tells everyone. Her parents think she's going to college for, um, for to be like a gender major. And she's told the other guy that she's going for business. So she's trying to explain how she's going for the uh, business agenda. And uh, she's telling everyone all this bullshit and just like having a complete breakdown, like physically and mentally, while also trying to like hit on this guy in front of his wife. And uh, everything's just catastrophic. It feels like everything will end very short. I think it's like 77 minutes. Nice and concise movie. Yeah, it's, uh, it sounds interesting. Uh, I, I do just want to state here that looking up at it on IMDb, uh, it says it's a comedy. Uh, I don't see any mention of horror, so I think that interesting is that reading is interesting because <laughs> you, you you sound you make it sound like it's like a much more dark and like you know uh, in, you know internal you yeah know, stress <laughs> kind of film, and it's like oh it's a light comedy and, and the 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 posters, even the title right yeah well the poster is kind of cheeky. It's like she's there posed with like a donut or something in her hand or it's like a uh and she's got like this cream cheese dress with bagels all over <laughs> yeah, it it's, it's kind it's, of fucked up it doesn't i mean like shiva baby too you think oh that's gonna be a funny movie nobody would name a horror movie that but i i don't think it's so much horror it's like social thriller or yeah i, was, I just I find it interesting that, that imdb does list it as anything other than like a comedy it's not like a comedy drama comedy thriller or anything it's a comedy it's funny and, and by your description here it sounds like a, a very stressful kind of you know concise experience yeah it's the most uncomfortable i've i've been with the movie this year i mean i've already watched some horror movies and whatnot and this this really got me a lot more than those have so uh, i it really does turn the knife on it all too uh, it's so uncomfortable watching her she's so awkward in every situation um Shiva Baby, really a horrible title for a movie that, uh, I don't know, maybe it is funny that it's called Shiva Baby. It is a funny movie, too. I mean, I did laugh but a few times, uh, effective if it is a comedy, but I don't think that's its primary purpose at all. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. It's interesting to hear your your take on it. Uh, but yeah, it, it looks like it's a, a, a fun little watch, you know, something interesting to, to put on. Yeah, yeah, I really liked it. Um, I'm not as crazy about it as everyone. I think it's getting really, wow. really strong praise, but I, I like it. It looks like it was another case of the director made a, a short version first, a short film. This one's about eight minutes, same actress. And then uh, that was 2018. And I guess that helped her get funding for, for this full feature. Yeah, that's a, that's the way in right now. Um, that's the reason to make shorts for a lot of people. And, and that's effective. I, I really like this director and actress. I, I hope to see a lot more of both of them. The director, I don't think we stated her name yet, is uh, Emma, Emma Seligman. Seligman. Seligman, yeah. yeah. Really talented. Yeah, this looks like it's her first full feature, so notable. Yeah, it almost it almost has like a, a feeling of like The Lobster or um, like a Yorgos Lanthimos kind of feeling to Th- it. Those are also listed as comedies, but now, yeah. now, now I've got a better idea of what you mean in terms of the, the darkness and, and also the advertising there. That makes more sense. Yeah, I'd say it's close to Lanthimos, but also hereditary. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, in between those is Shiva Baby, which I, I really do recommend. I mean, it's short, it's it's sweet, it's 
more movies need to be that that less than 90 minute time frame not i was amazed like, long, not because longer movies aren't great they are yeah. <laughs> but you can fit in more shorter movies and they're I'm more willing to take a risk on a shorter movie you know just like if it's crap then you know that's fine because it only took me like an hour or whatever the only thing i'd say is it's like probably a seven dollar rental for for people not in the press so uh, maybe wait for it to get to like amazon netflix and then that's a really easy s 77 minutes so yeah it's always nice what do we have next is it my turn yet yeah sure um, okay so uh last week you told me about this series called fishing with john that's right yep the documentary series uh and so i decided for this week that that i would try it and i watched the first two episodes and I instantly understood why you like this series. <laughs> it's pretty self-evident, isn't it? <laughs> it's it is exactly your brand of humor. It is it is very dry. It is very absurdist. <laughs> it's very chill. Uh, but I don't know if it's my <laughs> brand of humor. <laughs> conversely, I don't really well, think. I don't know if it's for anyone but me. I mean, this is maybe, exactly what I want, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, watching this, I'm like, this just makes so much sense. This is this is exactly what Calvin is looking for in his, you know, absurdist comedy shows. <laughs> if I had a brand, I think fishing with John and Twin Peaks would pretty much define what that would that would be that I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so uh I, I won't say I didn't enjoy it because there was there was good yeah. bits about it, but it's it's very like <laughs> not nonsensical in, in some areas it's very just like like plotting through things you know and kind of just going about doing whatever it's it's humorous in some ways it's also feels like like some of the jokes are just like thrown out there what i found fascinating watching yeah. it i'll say is the the fabricated nature of it specifically like watching the cinematography throughout and considering how staged the scenes were but how they were acted and performed you know in, in this very kind of weird and dry and seemingly naturalistic way and again but it's, it's also it, like performatively sarcastic i mean yeah just the so, whole nature of doing it he doesn't really want to take his friends fishing he's kind of fucking with them just by bringing them right it's <laughs> it's it's very clearly intentioned you know to to come across that way and again like kind of satirizing these kind of like nature docker fishing shows or whatever and uh having a conversation with my fiance it also like kind of shed a light on why this might not resonate with me as much uh and, and also kind of driving back into our uh, conversation last week is that these kind of like nature documentary shows like we talk about the like, <laughs> blue planet stuff it's it's not usually what i sit down and watch right. it's not my my thing just like observing people and things and like and kind of mining information and insight from that observation i you know i, I just don't get as much out of and i'd, I'd rather like be fed information i think that <laughs> or, makes or, like, get, like presented balance, right? i'll say yeah I feel like that makes a good balance on the show because I'm all observational and weird surrealist stuff. And I think you're the opposite in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's why our dynamic dynamic works so well is because we're like the opposite in terms of so many things. I certainly hope so. So what ones did you watch? You watched the, the Tom Waits one and the Jim and Jarmusch the, one, Yeah, right? the Jim Jarmusch. Yeah. I, I sat, uh, sat through them both and I was like, 
Yeah, I can tell this isn't for me. <laughs> the Defoe one's pretty good, I'd say. Uh, some of the later ones, a couple of them really don't want to be there. So that's you, you might rope me into seeing Defoe because I like him, and I know the series ends with Dennis Hopper, as all should, uh, shows should end. <laughs> I and mean, it, it couldn't like... continue after Dennis Hopper. Let's say that. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, just him and anything is is it bound to be a ridiculous and you know. Uh, insane kind of experience and in so, so that, many ways i think you're right because it matches like my interest in music as well as like john Lurie being like a jazz musician and being improvisational and bringing that into a reality context where it feels like the show is just improvisation of reality i mean uh, before reality shows were even existent it was right, but, but still very like i said very fabricated and planned out and intended like yes, you yes. you have like so, again so much of the camera crew and the work like they're detached. I, I know there was like one scene that, that did kind of catch me off guard where Jim Jarmusch gets into the car and he's like, you know, are you, are you, you know, he's asking John Lori if he's going to drive or whatnot. And John Lori's like, oh, there's no one else here. And, and, and like Jim kind of like looks back into the seat at the guy with the camera there. <laughs> it is good. I, I, I mean, I like that stuff. I like the humor of it. Um, it really is completely my brand, though. So yeah, no, de- definitely it was it was it made perfect sense watching it. <laughs> this is unexpected, but but I'm delighted that you watched it and had that conclusion. So thank you. <laughs> yes, I, I I gave it its its fair shot at least, and I'm glad that I under I have a better perspective on it now, knowing you as well. <laughs> uh, your choice, save Godzilla for next week. I think so. Sure, sure, we'll okay. save Godzilla. All right, uh, let's do your doc then. Yeah. So I did actually watch another doc series, or at least I finished one rather than, uh, you know, watching through all of Fishing with John. And uh, after like a prolonged six month time period, I finally got through my next Ken Burns series. Oh, wow. Uh, I think, uh, what was it, a while ago on the episode before we even started this doc series, uh, I talked about the Civil War at one point, which I'd been binging. But this time I talked about his... A series from 2001 about jazz oh you watched all that yeah uh again over a prolonged period of time uh you know i'd watch an episode every few weeks or so just when i had free time because sometimes each episode is like the length of an entire movie you know they can range from like 90 minutes to two oh, yeah. hours on some of these and i'm looking at like some of his next ones like the like the first episode of his world war ii series is like two and a half hours on its own I'm like jesus christ how am i supposed to find time for this <laughs> i i do like when it gets like um when it's just letters back home in the civil war one that's that's my favorite brand of ken burns documentary when the, there's a dramatic voiceover yeah now those those are really good the civil war one is still kind of like the quintessential that's the only one i've seen yeah uh the one that i really liked that i didn't talk about before probably liked a little bit more was his one on the roosevelts and Mm. and that's one thing i'll say as well that uh, i'll get into this this is the more i watch the more i find ken burns is entirely obsessed with the concept of america yeah that's all his documentaries are about they're about america as a culture baseball one the country music one (laughs) yeah and it, they're literally all about it. The National Parks, the Gettysburg Address, the trial of the Chicago 7. It's it, And of course, he's covering all the wars and everything. What He's doing one on the Buffalo next and Muhammad Ali. Yeah, the, These are all major cultural institutions and icons. And that's not a bad thing. I think that's a very great. And he provides a lot of insight on that experience. But it is like this singular concept that he is 
following through, which uh, I think is which a is very- pretty great to have like a filmography that's like a a whole like complete picture of a country. Like I mean, once he dies or something, we're going to celebrate that as a really it, singular yeah. work. And it is it is a very like colorful and varied history of America, and I think the jazz series helps to highlight that especially because it is very centric on a a crucial part of black history in America and it makes that very prominent and focused of his narrative you know covering the the likes of Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington and you know they get into Miles Davis at the end and such you know and uh, Charlie Parker and all them while not forgetting to mention some of the more prominent white jazz musicians like mm-hmm. Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw and Dave Brubeck but they're very much so like less the focus they're they're more of the, the footnotes and they address how the kind of swing era of, of jazz was kind of co-opted by these you know big band uh, white performers and and it's so much more focused on the development of jazz as a, a cultural expression expression of you know black identity and history and experience and the development of it as an art form and medium. I really think it's important that Ken Burns gets into that stuff as well. I mean, he doesn't just do the Americanized version of something. I watched his country music one as well, actually. Um, it's all about the women of country music. You wouldn't quite expect that from like the the marquee there, that it would be uh, almost singularly a history of country through the lens of women. I mean, he's really good at also finding those internal stories there uh that matter about about cultures and colorful um dynamics there mm-hmm. i yeah I, I really liked the jazz series uh I, I don't think it was necessarily as strong as something like the civil war the roosevelt's because it just had less of a concept <laughs> of like time i think yeah. and so i got like like whereas those have very clear dates developments and stuff you know like, like a easy to follow timeline that you can you know throw up there and demonstrate the the jazz series is is a little less it's just a little less clear in that sense and that's just by nature of the subject and so some it would it would hop around from person to person and i i didn't have as clear a portrait of you know where we started where we're going you know where we've ended up necessarily it was a little more all kind of like combined together but it was still incredibly thorough and formative and uh, wonderful to listen to lots of great insight from various talking heads uh they even had like some contemporary people like Artie shaw was still alive when they okay. made the documentary yeah. so he was in it and that was that was pretty cool uh, I, mean, and- I, I bet it exposed you to a lot of really cool artists that are yeah. especially brought up in culture anymore which is probably great so. yeah and, and and this is kind of been happening you know alongside my own development and interest in jazz as a as a medium as a genre and listening to it more and getting more exposure and especially by the end of the the documentary when we're getting to the close of like the 1960s and where all these definitive icons were dying out and jazz was branching off into all these different experimental forms and such uh it just it gave me this this very like sullen feeling of feeling like a a genuine american art form it just just like like gone from the public conscious what what was once the most dominant and iconic and you know um influential export of american culture you know his is kind of like just you know wilted away into barely a 
you know, uh, thing of uh, like a like a footnote of society. Currently. Well, I think it's I think not it's that jazz is everywhere. I mean, it is yeah. in every genre of music that comes after it. And, and, and I'm not saying there. it doesn't exist anymore or it's worse now than it was, but its lack of prominence now, it just doesn't. You know, it it made me sad. I think it's <laughs> because I don't back. think <laughs> I don't think anything uh, since then has has kind of existed as a singular form of American <laughs> expression that could be considered a sequel not rock and roll not yeah. not rap not about and even extending beyond music i don't think there's anything today that is culturally as interesting as jazz was at its height i'd say hip-hop but um there's i'd say hip-hop's pretty natural evolution too um, yeah and, and and this is just it's a it's a personal takeaway coming from having just watched that but yeah and, jazz and, for me too uh, the most interesting music those and it, well and it feels like and it feels like such an alive and beautiful and expressive thing that you know that that just needed to exist <laughs> well here i am listening to john zorn play a trumpet into a balloon i'm like why isn't anyone into this weird esoteric shit (laughs) well you know well someone screams in pain in the background and uh, people are popping balloons (laughs) i'm like why aren't people into modern jazz (laughs) (laughs) why is it such a niche (laughs) and again there's there's i think still legitimacy in that especially because that is like i think unquestionably a form of art that in yeah. ways that even pop, you know popular jazz didn't, wasn't necessarily ever you know at the height of that's definitely uh in a form of abstract uh expression there it's just like picking up where uh, maricone left off <laughs> legitimately in a few ways i think uh, with the instrumentation but uh, no, yeah. i i would definitely recommend the series if you can ever find the time it was it was very long to sit through but I was very, uh, you know, happy with it. I, I've, I've enjoyed spending lots of time with these docu series, these histories, and just like whenever I find an hour or two here or there, just to put it on. Usually in the morning, uh, you know, when I on my day off or whatever, throw on an episode when I have my coffee. Who have you gravitated to most, like in the jazz scene? Like, is there one like standout that you've? I, there's, there's definitely one standout with a second place I'll give. And, Let's say uh, Duke Ellington, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's Duke Ellington. Obviously, he was the, for the, the movie most, scores to start with, right? Well, like, not just the movie scores, but his like you know his own compositions and everything. His you know giant orchestral sound. He really was the the unrivaled master, I think, of of compositions of jazz. And then uh, I would say on on the other side of things, I love Dave Brubeck a lot. You know, he, mm-hmm. his sound is a lot you know more simple. I guess you would say it's a you know smaller band. Brubeck, yeah. But yeah, I. I, I really dig his his vibe there, uh, and of course, you know people like like Louis Armstrong and stuff, and, and Miles Davis, like I mentioned, and uh, Charles Mingus, of course, is another big one. I'm a big Mingus head. Mm-hmm. Mingus he, he, among us. He, I, I found the album he did in the the '60s with Duke Ellington, uh, which which has been interesting to listen to as well. I swear every. Every artist you name is the best artist to drive to. I'll just put that on while I'm Ubering folks around. Everyone is calm. I mean, that that puts people at ease. It's yeah. the best that, music that was ever made. So. That's the other thing as well, is that I think jazz is just so universally appealing. Everyone yeah. likes jazz. Even if they know. don't know it, I think I yeah. think they like it. I, because if they like some music, they like something influenced by jazz. So they're already there or halfway Where, there. Whereas I think just about every other genre... <laughs> Uh, there, there's something that someone could find unappealing about it. I, I think yeah. jazz truly is like, you know, uh, 
un- unperturbable. <laughs> yeah, especially when John Zorn's really blowing your ears out. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was great. I'm so glad you, you found that. This yeah. is fulfilling for me personally. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I, th- I think that's our first topics here. So shall we uh, come back after a quick break? Just, just have a loop of Rocky screaming Adrian at the, at the end. What I think is most funny about like the Rocky score and all of that is like everyone identifies it with Eye of the Tiger, which isn't even in the series to like the third movie. <laughs> That's the same thing. Like I, uh, and, and and people will read this in my description of the film I typed there is that like everything you kind of associate with Rocky is like Rocky three onwards like well super heavy montage sequences <laughs> ultra patriotic you know you know american versus soviet sentimentality you got the stupid robot in one of the movies too yeah, yeah. that's what that's what people think about a lot of the times think about rocky I, and it's like a lot of that is in the first film but it's not nearly as pronounced there's there's way more like you know extensive like sentimental drama and such that the first film has is that tends to catch people <laughs> off guard because it's not like the ultra macho thing that you expect. Again, it's the same thing with like First Blood as well, what the yeah. Rambo series became versus what the first one is. I'd say it's the least Rocky movie in the whole series. I mean, five <laughs> is the obviously the worst one, but Rocky one is has the least Rocky elements. Uh, they really build up into like a crescendo by Rocky four. Then there's really nowhere to go. Uh, Rocky four backs us into a corner of the a movie that's entirely a montage where I think like 60% of the movie is montage. My absolute favorite and the most, uh, the only movie I'll accept like jingoistic American ideas about because it gets me so fucking pumped <laughs> in, in such a stupid way. I just mm-hmm. want to throw on that America cape, go for a jog. You know, it is, it is kind of ironic that it goes from the first film where Apollo Creed, <laughs> rides into the stadium poses george washington crossing the delaware in this overblown <laughs> pompous display of you know american patriotism fervor as, as an obvious like joke at his expense like we're supposed to yeah. you know think he's a clown right and and then the series just goes whole hog into that by the fourth film <laughs> it, it really does develop into that um it can only reflect its times but it really does <laughs> I've always been an advocate for all the Rocky movies. I'd even watch five just because you have to in a marathon, but uh, even Rocky Balboa, very overlooked movie uh, after five between creeds. I've only watched the first one. So again, here's another point where divergent perspectives will help highlight things on the show here. So I have this very pure idea of the first Rocky (laughs) film uh, untainted really by the others, just my, you know, general cultural awareness of, how the series evolved over time and uh yeah and i think it's still a, a really great movie uh some caveats that we'll get to so i i do think it's appropriate last week we talked about capra uh, <laughs> okay so john avildsen is the director here his favorite yeah, I'm, director i'm, in the I'm interested is... on where this is gonna go because okay. i have i have no idea how capra fits into this <laughs> okay John Avelson's favorite director in the world is Capra. So, okay. um, his big inspiration is to create like a Capra court 
popcorn, as they used to call these movies, which is like a, a corny inspirational story of optimism. Um, and I think it really fits into like that Mr. Smith character in a lot of ways. Um, I feel like the whole construction of Rocky is very Capra-esque. Uh, when Capra saw it, he was like, a, I voted for it at the Academy across the board. He said it was the best movie within 10 years of its release. Wow. Um, so so there is like a connection there where he keeps making these optimistic movies. And I think Rocky too often gets assigned just as like a Stallone vehicle that is like the, you know, like the film land story of how this uh, down out guy got, you know, it's a Rocky story for Stallone. I mean, it, it really embodies like his movement through Hollywood, but I think Avelson especially is kind of singular in the first movie for crafting something that, that doesn't always appear after the second one. So uh, I think that's what he brings to it. That's that's really interesting. I didn't know that about uh, Capra and, and uh, I think uh, gr- great to bring that perspective in as well. Uh, yeah, you, don't because... often think, you don't often think about how worlds collide like that. Like one thing I was going to bring up as well is that I know that Rocky was one of the last films Charlie Chaplin saw before he died. It was on TV and he, mm-hmm. and he enjoyed it. And that's always like a weird thing to think about. Like this icon of silent comedy <laughs> had an opinion on Rocky. You know, it's it's a weird thing. You see how how long like film or how quickly film history evolves and changes. And so yeah. something like like Capra being very enthusiastic about Rocky. I mean, it makes sense when you say it, but also right. like I just I have a very hard time picturing it because he's like forever stuck in the 1950s to me <laughs> i know and in a year when you have like some of his contemporaries making films like network comes out that year and he's still going for rocky across the board in every category like that's that's one thing i was gonna say sydney lumet yeah lumet was by the way very upset that rocky won best picture <laughs> because, i would be like, too yeah. it's it's it, it swept like all the acting categories it was obviously like the most prestigious <laughs> film i do have to say as well 1976 hell of a year for movies it was the same yeah. year as taxi driver as well and carrie G- jesus that's it's a, I mean, one of the most stacked years in uh american film history at least i'll say i'm a hell of a rocky fan but goddamn there's some better movies <laughs> around that time yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah but i mean like allison we're looking at like karate kid versus the guy who would go on to like you know raging bull so <laughs> I mean, there's a, you know, there's a difference is all I'll say. Uh, It doesn't mean that this is not valuable. I think it, it shows something that wasn't being done at the movies with a a very modest budget um, and creating something, you know, that's human and, and is profound just for being winning and likable. Yeah, that's that's the thing I'll definitely say is that uh, the the inspirational quality of Rocky survives and endures and you know maintains its uh, public grip um, despite other elements that may not have have aged quite as well. Uh, one one scene that always gets me really pumped uh, is is still that that montage where you got the famous uh, iconic thing and it's just it's this the bit where. Rocky's running along like the shoreline and you could see him just like like pick up pace like really fast as as the music <laughs> like spread. pulls up yeah and it's and it's really amazing to see the first time <laughs> I saw that scene I remember I, I literally like stood up from the couch and cheered and it was it was really exciting everyone wants to jump up and do like the the Rocky cheer once he gets up the steps I mean when I went you know when I was in Philadelphia you have to do it yeah you can't walk by there and not do the run and and the celebration there's there's no other option here. I mean, how could you possibly even think about existing there and not going up and celebrating? It, worked, it, it works so well. And a lot of that, I think, is due to Bill Conti's 
iconic okay. you know score but it, because it's so triumphant but it's the, yeah. the reasoning why it's not it's alone it's it's complementary to the sequence as it's happening the montage you know the sequence of events as we're watching them play out and a lot of what came before informs that like because it's the second time he comes to the top of the stairs in right. the film. The first, the first time, time he's just staggering. Yeah, he's very yeah. exhausted, and so it's it's a it's a smart way of showing his progress in his training there. So the first time in his regiment, he's he's reached his place and he can't quite get there without getting entirely winded, and then he has to return back home. I have sides to say, hurting. I have to say, the main theme of Rocky absolutely cracks me up. Too. <laughs> Trying hard now. <laughs> Getting strong now. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little simplistic. Maybe it would be better without the words, but uh, I'm you know, fly now. <laughs> Come on. That's the whole song. Yep. That's those are the words of the song. You're not you're not wrong. Those are the lyrics. <laughs> well, I think it's funny. I I mean I think it's endearing because it it's so it's so dumb and simple, right? It is, like, it is. But again, but it, the music behind it, it's great. Yes. And and dumb and simple is like the whole movie's MO. That's Rocky. That's Rocky as a character. <laughs> so I know like Avildsen took uh, uh, Conti back. He's like, I just want you to do something like this. And he shows him Beethoven 6. He's like, oh, okay. I only have to make it like Beethoven. Thanks, man. <laughs> so he went back and made like this really fucking rousing score that does sound classical in some Lots ways. Of, well, in some ways, but then there's like an electric guitar solo yeah. at one point in the middle of it too. <laughs> yeah, he makes it cool and modern still. <laughs> I mean, it is pump up music. Like Rocky, I, I couldn't help but lift weights while watching. Like, I, I have to do yeah. Yeah, yeah, to get a I set of weights out. Either shadow boxing, just getting up and putting the gloves on again. You know, I did a lot of boxing, by the way, earlier in my life. So I, I guess I identify like this bridging bowl in a certain way. Mm. Yeah, uh, I, I can see that. You yeah, do look like I mean, someone who boxed formerly. Is it the um, unlike me with my, <laughs> my tiny skinny noodle arms here. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I guess I should say only personal note is the boxing gym I used to go to still owned around like Rocky Balboa time for that movie. He came in and trained there. I, I was never there at the time, but uh, I knew he came in on weekends and uh, he would spar with real people. So he was a he was like a dedicated boxer. He he got to learn the form eventually. I, I, I do thought think, that was cool. Yeah. Stallone, I think, is really like the key selling point of the film, not only in his characterization, but of course, famously for writing the screenplay. Um, you know, this is this is his story and it feels very personal because of that. And the fact that it's his own kind of success story behind the scenes as well, in that he turned down the opportunity of selling the script for a greater sum. I think like one hundred fifty thousand dollars, something like that. So and he that only he got actually 20, star. star, right? Yeah, yeah. But but considering how that gamble worked out for him and literally birthed an entire career, you, you can see, you know, why that was so important. And again, like just in the same way that Rocky is kind of a, you know, down on his luck guy with no prospects, given an opportunity to take, you know, to take on the whole world and, and really catapult himself into the limelight. You know, Stallone's success story is the, the same in that regard. And that, you know, the little guy was given a shot uh, yeah. with, with everyone else and and succeeded and through perseverance. Well. Well, I, I want to say the most interesting thing is that he doesn't succeed, right? I mean, he loses the last fight. So. Yeah, that's that's something I think a lot of people forget. But right. again, it, it's just like you, you got to reconsider and recontextualize your definition but, of yeah, success yeah, he, there. He definitely succeeds. Yeah, there, there is that, that great moment, that great scene and that single shot he has just before he goes to the fight where he goes to Adrian's like, I can't do it. I can't, I can't do it. Uh, and, it's a real mumbler. 
yeah yeah that's it's his characteristic that's the defining thing but yeah and, and this really great sequence and that he's um, you know emotionally he opens up about his fears and anxieties about the whole thing and just expresses how he just wants to be able to go the distance just to last and prove himself to to be resilient and to be able to take on the champ not even necessarily win there and it's this great sequence that's done in this one shot kind of like slowly zooms in over the course of a few minutes and i think if i remember right the producers wanted to cut it out they oh, wanted to take the scene out and i can't imagine if you did because you'd, you'd rip out like a huge emotional core of the film there it's an important selling point and stallone gives a very a great heartfelt performance you know in in that sequence the producers really wanted to cut a lot of the movie too i mean they wanted to cut all, most of the like capra moments and i know that's what ellison was fighting for like like in the ending too like his original idea was that he they'd just be carried out by like an audience right like he really wanted it to be capra where uh, both fighters were carried out and declared like the victor despite the uh, result but i think even better he chose one where because they didn't have enough extras, they couldn't afford extras. So they went with what we have, which is the most iconic moment in the ring where he's like a wounded Buffalo and uh, she comes in, you know, you get the Adrian and, and yeah. the Rocky. <laughs> uh, so I think that, that call and response there is really cool too. So you, he wins in love no matter what. So that, he, I was going to say that ingenuity, the, the fact you point out that they weren't able to afford a lot of extras that leads to a lot of, great moments of you know quick thinking throughout the film like mm. famously the the sequence on the, the the ice skating rink is is done the way <laughs> it is because none of the extras showed up that right. day for filming <laughs> so they had to improvise something on the spot to come up with and this is nice then intimate moment between him and adrian they get and it's the same sequence thing with like uh later on when rocky goes to check out the arena before the big fight yeah. and, he, and he points out how like the the posters the shorts on the poster are wrong and this because of an actual error they had in the production and, and <laughs> so they just <laughs> they incorporated it into the, the the scene there the script because it you know instead it reflects this moment of like rocky's so insecure about things he's fixating on these these bits and the promoter's trying to tell him you know just don't worry about it man you know it's gonna be good either way i think it's funny too they when they go to skate he doesn't wear the skates he just walks on the yeah, shoes because like kind of because <laughs> he, does he doesn't want to hurt his foot which seems more dangerous to me walking on, on shoes on on ice but okay uh, well, also well, yeah, he, he runs in converse shoes which is a huge pain on your feet but it's not my <laughs> business so yeah that that whole bit about him you know like like it's it's a lot of uh character exposition there like talking about his his history and you know how he got the way he is and talking about being a southpaw you know oh, and, i i do like the guy i do like the guy timekeeping too yelling out five more minutes <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that makes that a lot of fun yeah it's a it's a it's a good sequence and uh you know i'm, I'm happy to see so much uh you know uh many ideas and honest uh portrayals of character like that's that's a good demonstration of how in tune stallone was with the characters there in his in his script and it feels like a very genuine portrait of of this uh down and out guy who just wants to prove himself and and find purpose in in his life and and that's really the kind of inspiring and singular aspect of rocky that continues to make it so enduring i think if you've been to philly at all too it just reads so genuine to how the streets are there like a, it's it, just it, the whole it, culture <laughs> embodied in a film it's really the most philly film ever so. I, I i will say i'm sure it looks better now but no because uh, <laughs> no no okay i, yeah, I, I don't it, like it, philly by the way <laughs> I, i'm a i'm a pittsburgh fan and everything i don't like philly it does it does look like 
a real shithole uh, in some of the places. Like like when he's running through the market, it just looks like a terrible, terrible place to live. Which again, like I think, helps inform the character of Rocky more so and gives him a, uh, a you know better underdog identity. But yeah, not not a great looking place. No, yeah, I like I like that because it shows that Rocky could rise from anywhere. I mean, the, he, could, the place, he could rise from the slum. The, yeah, the slum that was once the place of foundation for our country. <laughs> it makes sense how things have gone. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's um, another interesting aspect is that the film kind of takes place around the bicentennial uh, of the, the country's history. And, and that's the kind of the whole conceit for Apollo Creed staging this fight. And then his whole like George Washington get up at the end and everything just stirring up this. <laughs> I haven't know, thought about that connection to it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's why it's, you know, it's 1976. It's 200 mm-hmm. years since the signing of the Declaration of Independence. That makes sense now. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I did always think it was funny that he comes out like that. And there is like the whole racial component going on in the background that he's just picking this guy from this gym because he's Italian. Because he thinks the black guy versus the Italian stallion is a good thing for America. Oh, he literally spells it out. He's like, on yeah. America's birthday, I'll fight. You know, who discovered America? <laughs> Italian. Didn't wasn't Christopher Columbus from Spain though? Yeah, but the Americano Amer- Americano guy who made Starbucks. He's, he's ah, from Italy. Oh yeah, yeah. There, that's where it is. Anyway, it doesn't matter because the Vikings actually discovered America. So yeah, yeah, we know that. Uh, it's all Viking blood. Uh, Should have fought a Viking, to be honest. That would, that would have been great. I also would have loved to see Apollo Creed ride in with uh, a horned helmet, <laughs> eating, you know, drinking like a thing of grog or whatever. I guess we should talk more about Creed, who uh, I think be, has become the lasting character of Rocky. Now the movies are just called Creed, like it's his legacy now. <laughs> uh, I think that's really dope, too, that successfully it transferred from a white guy handing it over to a black, you know, black creators. I think that's really inspirational that, that Rocky's continued to be like a sign of hope not just for white kids from Philly anymore. Like now it's, uh, you know, culturally different. I mean, that that's significant to me that Coogler's making movies. And um, I, I, I think that's great. I, I love Creed too. So Yeah. Uh, I, I think Carl Weathers as Apollo Creed is perhaps the best of the supporting characters in the film. Yeah. He's very charming and, <laughs> and charismatic. And uh, he, he, he embodies that kind of like, Muhammad Ali. Overconfident. Yeah. Yeah. Thing w- without coming across as like a, a caricature or like a stereotype or anything or demeaning even. Uh it's definitely like he's just this guy at the top and you know, uh, who who takes on a, a, a challenger for the pl- publicity of it and gets more than he bargained for. And he does great, of course, in the fighting sequences as well. He looks like an Adonis. And I think, yeah, they they both look really great, I think. Like the way they're structured, like um, Rocky, you see him physically developing and improving through the movie. Yeah. Like he looks pretty slumped over. He's wearing like three he, coats of clothes at the beginning, and then you know he, he gets strong. Like he begins to embody a fighter. He's he's not quite as like Greek looking as no. Apollo is. He's a little more schlubby in the fight sequence, but that's good because again, it's it creates a great dynamic there between the characters, and I think a good rivalry. And again, like this this different approach to fighting that they both have is embodied well in the fight sequences. Uh, one moment I'll say I think there's a little ridiculous or uh, too much is like that he he knocks Apollo Creed to the floor for the first time in his entire career with a single punch. Yeah, it was a real <laughs> quick punch too, just a little jab there, and he's yep. down. And he's down. It's like for eight seconds. It's like a, a huge amount of time. It's like oh, all right. <laughs> it feels like a more forced dramatic device, but uh, you know, I I I see why you're doing it. It, it I, works, I guess. I think the thing to remember about that is that like Stallone's 
kind of framing these around the history of boxing. So he's looking at the most significant matches throughout history. And that whole fight at the end is a construction of like all the great boxing moments that he's watched, like down from like Jack Johnson up to like modern times. And it, uh, it arrives at a point where boxing culture is really at its peak in America too. Like a, like promotions, uh, there was no bigger sport in the world than boxing at, at like one moment in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think it really, it does succeed as a boxing film, despite how little boxing there is. There's not it. much. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's really more towards the end and the training sequence. It's a lot more focused on like the romantic angle of the film, the parallel of that with Adrian, which is a little more contentious today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's a little rapey. Uh, yeah, uh, kind of a lot rapey in, in some ways. But also, uh, just uh, I, I will say it doesn't feel like the filmmakers were aware of that or like or they didn't intend it to. And not that that's like an excuse for it. If anything, that's more of a condemnation. It's just mm-hmm. like they're, they did a really bad job at I think, developing I think that. But lacking I Lacking awareness doesn't mean you you haven't done something incredibly offensive. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know? no, so, no, definitely not. But like, it, it gives me a little bit more perspective onto yeah. how this ended up the way it did. Because I'm like, I see what you were trying to do here. Me too. It yeah. just didn't work. <laughs> and I think then, they're really and... angling for something sweet and redeeming about him with the romance. Well, but him like continually gesturing her up the stairs, it's just a... How can you not kind of be a there, yeah? There's there's a couple of ways to read it, but one way that's very clear now, and and I think you can't deny that that's what is happening here in a very literal sense. But I see the the kind of intention of it. For one thing, I think the kind of expectations of courtship have changed a lot over time, even since like the seventies, yeah. where men were encouraged to be a little more aggressive and they've persistent. changed the last 10 years let's yeah. be honest i mean yeah. things have radically shifted and so the idea of that you that you're supposed to be you know uh more resilient in your pursuit and that women mm. were expected to be a little colder at first and you had to constantly try to win over the affections of someone that was you know more the expectation than it is today and that's what it seems like at first especially when he's like constantly you know, trying to, you know, get her to open up at the yeah. pet shop or whatever. It's not, it's not too bad there. Still, you know, there's a little bit of hint of like, this guy's a little too aggressive in his courting here, but it seems, you know, well-intended, not, you know, necessarily harmful. But once he does bring her back to his, you know, apartment and, and it's like literally, <laughs> he's okay. literally like, come in here, you know, so, come on in. And, and and it's really like, it's not really much of a choice. It's like, you can come in and stay in this apartment with me, or you can go home from the shitty area of town that you have yeah. no idea where it is in juxtaposition of her home. She uh, walks into the apartment and it's like the most serial killer thing ever. Like there's, there's fingerprints on every surface. There's beer, there's beer bottles stuffed like in a line on the couch. There's a Rambo knife hanging out from like the mattress. <laughs> I, it's like the most uh, fucked up looking Philadelphia apartment. On, and it's it is really explicit how uncomfortable it is. she's literally she literally says i'm uncomfortable and she does. I, I need to go home and he ignores that and pushes and he so. and he and he takes like his sweater off he takes her glasses off when she makes her way for the door he literally like barricades her in with his arms and uses his you know towering uh <laughs> physique to intimidate her and then he forces a, a kiss on her and even though afterwards the relationship she seems like entirely consensual and hunky dory like the the context of that is just unignorably like uh, uh abusive and assault <laughs> yeah i think we 
I think it's strange that by being with him, she's supposed to improve physically too, uh, because she's just like demurring when she's single and she's so shy and, you know, with the glasses and everything, suddenly he takes them off and he's like, oh, I knew you were beautiful under there. Like, I mean, like uh, she's constantly improving and becoming more beautiful the longer she's with him. It's just a very strange construction of her character that that he is what improves her and not her having agency or so. Well, and I understand the purpose of the dynamic there in introducing right. that because it's a parallel for Rocky in terms of, you know, proving his resilience and persistence as his greatest feat and ultimate triumph and how it aligns with the, the boxing narrative there as well. And that him, you know, pursuing Adrian and chasing despite the odds against him and ultimately being triumphant, you know, informs his victory in, you know, uh, fighting Apollo Creed as well. It's just that the way that resilience manifests is, is rape. <laughs> well, there, there's some other weird things that I, uh, that probably played better back then, like him, like grabbing the girl from her friends and like forcing her to walk home with this old man yeah. through this dirty neighborhood. Uh, that, that scene Capra said was the greatest of the whole movie, by the way. <laughs> Oh God! Uh, no. Because producers wanted that cut, but uh, Avildsen said that's the heart of the movie. The scene where he walks it's, the girl home. It's I, I I see what you mean by that, but it's not, and it's I think- it's an unnecessary bit. <laughs> but it's uh, because by that point, and and that's another thing at the early half of the film is that literally everybody bags on rocky for no reason <laughs> like w- when he's talking with the 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 guy who he's you know working for you know like you know doing you know beating up people for or whatever there's the driver who just he insults him out of nowhere for no reason yeah and you already get the sense that everyone treats rocky like shit by the way his employer does like you don't need this other guy talking about how a truck ran over his face or whatever <laughs> it's just like a, a really unnecessary and vulgar jab that already tells you what you need to know <laughs> Should we get to Polly? I, I guess Polly's yeah, a problem that's... as well. Or pa- Polly's good, but also a problem. I don't think he's good. But you don't I, think he's good? No, I just think he's detestable. I think I he don't... shows the alternative of Rocky for someone who doesn't try to go for that greatness. And uh, I mean, he gets his only win through advertising. Like his work is his only. I can, I can, I can right. see his value as a yeah. juxtaposition to Rocky. And that you don't he's have to like a, him. He's in a similar situation. Uh, to him and being like stuck in this destitute lifestyle but he's just like utterly detestable in every way even in the way like not not just in the way he treats his sister adrian which is again emotionally abusive in the most you know insane it's horrible kind of yeah, dramatic degree i but, don't like their relationship but also the way he treats rocky you know like he should be like the one person rocky has in the beginning of the film who can kind of like who supports him or appreciates him at all and he's as big a piece of shit as anyone to him <laughs> although i feel like burt young is good for it um i he he, he I, is a believable piece of shit I'll give i guess that. he would like dip his hands in turpentine to remind himself that he was arthritic like he really went far he would like rub vermouth on himself to make himself more dirty put his hands in the dirt and uh, he was a real foul guy uh, in that movie. Which is yeah, uh, I, I don't, I don't like him in any way. No, and the movie doesn't want me to, so that's successful. But does that mean it's good? I don't he, think so. He's a lot better off when he's a fucking robot in four. I think that's, that's a better <laughs> outcome. <laughs> that's a, that's the other thing is that I'm surprised he lasted that long in the series. I'm hearing like because ultimately his like w- what his actions as a character do he doesn't do a whole lot for the film no he doesn't uh i mean i think he has a purpose in one but i can't see it beyond one 
Yeah, I, I just I don't think he serves that that much, or he he assists in in informing too much about it. And at Although the end of I, the film, when he shows up with like a hooker <laughs> that he hired, and he's got like this big fur coat and a cigar, right? Just, like it's very emblematic of how awful and shallow his character is. And again, just like like I don't even care that he's there. Why is he here? <laughs> Although I love the the scene with the Rocky beating his meat. I mean, I mean, beating the, the meat <laughs> hanging down there. Cause it gets so bloody on his hands and you don't know if it's the blood from the meat or his hands. It's like an animal pounding away at an animal. Like every time I'd get on the boxing thing, I, I'd, you know, I had the boxing bag growing up. Every time I get on it, I think of Rocky pounding his meat really inspired my life. Supposedly uh, Stallone has flattened his knuckles because of how much he punched the meat. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting thing as well. It's not, a, you know, not an advisable training regiment, apparently. It's no. just, it, it looks, it's visually, you know, interesting for the film. I definitely regret not always boxing with the gloves on. And <laughs> I, I definitely have felt it in my life too. I, I understand this pain. Yeah. I mean, like who would think that, you know, punching things actually ends up hurting you a lot. <laughs> yeah, it, it I, really does. I will say there, there's one other character I want to highlight as we're kind of nearing the end here. And that's Burgess Meredith who, uh, while, while doesn't have as much to do in this film as you would think, uh, he's a little light in the first half and then is kind of just on Rocky's side as soon as it's beneficial for him. But Burgess Meredith, I think, is is terrific in the film, and I love him a lot as actor, particularly because now I have a more informed inspe- uh, perspective of who he was as an actor beforehand after seeing a number of 1940s comedies in which he's very prevalent and and seeing that now it's again where whereas Burgess Meredith was always the guy in Rocky to me now he's the guy making wisecracks with Fred Astaire in second chorus and <laughs> like a phony pretentious art you know uh, critic in uh, a Lubitsch film. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, like uh, when they're uh, designing the fight, uh, Stallone said, "We're just going to be the Astaire and Rogers of uh, boxing." Like he wanted to design <laughs> it with that authenticity of the dance of boxing that anyway that's uh, well uh I, I will say it doesn't come across like that but <laughs> i appreciate i appreciate the notion well the other thing about stallone and rocky is that he's created a mythology of this movie for so long and it's kind of brittle in my opinion it's constantly shifting like every 10 years he changes his narrative of of how things happened or who did what and i mean it's rarely become the avelston directed movie it's really become like a stallone creation of his mind right like i, I don't think people identify it as Avelston and the Karate Kid guy, do they? No, nah, de- definitely not. It's almost credited solely as a Stallone auteur effort. <laughs> yeah, it's very strange because it's definitely not. I mean, it's definitely yeah. there, like he wrote it. But again, I, th- I think we, uh, we we align with that idea that this was his his triumph, and you know, we're we're taken by that idea that he wrote it's this such script a good story when he only had a hundred dollars in his pocket or whatever. He was on the verge of selling his dog because he couldn't feed him anymore and stuff, and and then he had this triumph and success because he held out and got the star billing in it and such and i was doing this like before this he was acting in, in bit parts in films like he's got a he was in like a roger corman film and yeah, he's he, in like death wish or something or that like, death race, that, that death race, death race yeah. he was in he has a supporting role like just before this in farewell my lovely which is a <laughs> chandler adaptation starring robert mitchum uh and of course like famously he, he did like a porn film i think oh, yeah, yeah, that's where so. the, the Italian stallion name comes from, I think. <laughs> okay. I'm not making that up. That, that's that's I'm pretty sure a real thing. Wow. Maybe I'm making it up. <laughs> 
either way, it's uh, entertaining enough for going with it. That's definitely what happened. <laughs> um, and he, he was always like that about authorship. I know when he did Cobra, he asked that uh, his name would be put on the book title itself rather than the author of the book. So he's always kind of had this authorship idea. Uh, and I think he overwrites too often the Avelston, uh, the role there of the Capriness and the Capricorn, as I'm calling it. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, yeah, I, I think uh, we certainly should, should reinstate his name as uh, more, uh, you know, uh, inclusive in the story here and bringing it to the screen because the, the visual sense is a very important component of, of Rocky that uh, cannot be attributed to Stallone, really. Right. Um, yeah, I, I love the Rocky series. I doubt we're going to get to much more of them. I might wow. push for some four eventually. May, maybe, maybe. If there's ever any conflict with you know Russia again, uh, well, there's there a new it. cut of four coming out in a few months, I think. So the 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 stallone cut <laughs> it is um i wish that it were just making the movie into an extended montage but i don't think we're that lucky yeah pro- probably not but if we could i'm sure there's a fan cut out there that that makes it strictly montagey <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm sure i've made a fan cut <laughs> I, I love rocky four so much <laughs> i can see see why now uh at one point in my early film journey rocky was one of my favorite films because it did in- inspire me so much yeah, that's not, fair. Not not as much now. Um, this this was I, a bit of a reevaluation for me. Uh, but uh, again, there are certain aspects of the film that are fairly undeniable, and it's largely still a a positive, borderline great experience. Um, and and its accolades and you know praises are certainly earned. I realized now there's a lot of audio issues too. People are mic'd improperly or it changes scene from scene. There's, there, a, there's lot. a couple. I think it's yeah, part of its charm that, though, the yeah. amateur quality of it. I feel like that's what works with Rocky, that it was so modest in a time that was so cynical. It was bringing back like that capraism of the, like the, what the movies used to be uh, in a time that was getting so deeply cynical after like yeah. Vietnam and shit. Just, and, just compare it to Network. This yeah, a right. cynical film. <laughs> yeah, compare Rocky to anything else that year. I think you'll find like so much more heart than uh, it, it's not realistic about that. Uh, I, nobody really gets to be Rocky. We realize uh, most of us are uh, faded to a life of Polly. So. Polly's, yeah. We're yeah. all a bunch of Polly's. Hopefully, all the Polly's be a Rocky. Well, yeah, hopefully we're, we're less abusive pieces of shit than Polly, but uh, considering today's atmosphere, I doubt it. <laughs> uh, we could all hope to be better. And I think yep. that's the message of Rocky that uh, any of us, wherever we are, could, you know, getting stronger now yeah we gotta we gotta fly gotta now fight. We, gotta fight now we do we do actually gotta fly now so yeah. uh thanks everyone for tuning in this week make sure as always to check out our website thetwingeeks.com for our latest reviews retrospectives and features you can follow us on twitter as well at the twin geeks and individually at calvin kempf and at david a punch don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast, with Pavlos and Brogan, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. Uh, yeah, and uh, next week we're doing Destry Rides Again, the uh, 1939 Western comedy spoof with uh, James Stewart and Marlena Dietrich. Uh, it's another pivotal one alongside Stagecoach that helped resuscitate the genre when it was kind of in a low point. Uh, so that one should be a lot of fun. I know Calvin hasn't seen it yet, and I hope he uh, has a positive impression. When logic